Welcome to Edgemont Bible Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, where our mission is to glorify God by guiding people into a discipleship relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's listen in to today's message. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Glad Sue's here this morning. She, uh... <laughs> First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Turn this down just a little. I think I'm getting kind of an echo here. Okay. First Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Who is there to harm you? If you prove zealous for what is good. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Peter mentions people uh, uh, that uh, may harm you, maybe not physically, but possibly physically, but harm you in things that they say, intimidate you. Um, and he says, don't fear their intimidation. Don't be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. And then he says this. He says, don't be troubled. Don't be intimidated. Here's what you need to do. Always, he says, always. Today, tomorrow, next week, next year, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, when you're at home, when you're at the circus, uh, wherever you're at, wherever you're at. He says, always being ready. Now, to be ready for something means you have to prepare for it, okay? Unfortunately, we're not automatically ready for things, you know? If you're going to go on a vacation, you know, you have to prepare for it, you know? You have to do the laundry and, you know, and make sure you've got someone to keep the dog and the cat and, and uh, pack the suitcase. You've got to be ready. Well, you've got to be ready for this. Uh, people will intimidate you and... Uh, he says, and the natural thing is you become fearful because people are intimidating you in some way. But he says, don't be. Always be ready. Prepare yourself to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. I've noticed the past several years as I counsel families that I'm finding more and more families whose son or daughter has been intimidated, negatively affected by the issues that we have in our culture. And my goodness, you know, there's a billion of them, isn't there? You know, you got transgender issues and homosexual issues, moral relativism, but something that I'm seeing a whole lot more and a whole lot more 
issues about the existence of God. And it's not that the, the son or daughter doesn't believe in God anymore, but they're fearful and have been intimidated and just don't know what to say. Well, mom and dad don't know what to say either. And uh, they go to church and they don't get any answers there as to what to say. So, you know, kids are growing up believing the things that you taught them. You know, things that you taught them, mom and dad taught them, what they learned in church, what they read in the Bible and in Sunday school. And, you know, like God created the heavens and the earth, Adam and Eve and Noah and the ark were historical people and historical events. These things really did happen. And then as they get a little older and get out and about a little bit more and and, uh, and uh, start relating more with other people and going to school and then high school and then college or, you know, they're online, they're on their phone, they're reading all kinds of stuff, getting all kinds of uh, uh, information fe- uh, fed into them. And <clears throat> their faith is challenged. You know, they've grown up in church, they've heard all these things, and now they're hearing all these other things. Their faith is being challenged, and, 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 and they begin to doubt. That's what I'm finding a lot of in families, and that causes a lot of family issues. Our kids are doubting these things, and what do we say to them? As most of you know, I have a Rumble channel. It's called Biblical Counseling, Marriage, and Family. You can access it through my website, biblicalcounselingmarriagefamily.net. Okay, the videos are usually around <clears throat> oh anywhere from six to ten minutes. I think there's out of the ninety something that I've done over the past couple, almost two years, uh, I think there's two of them that's probably twenty minutes or thirty minutes, something like that. But I did a series uh, not long ago titled "Raising Kids to Think." The first video. I called it featherweight faith. Featherweight faith is the kind of faith that's easily blown away, like feathers. When it's challenged by your son or daughter's friends, their peer group, kids at high school or at college or uh, on the Internet or something like that, they begin to doubt. I began to research uh, some things about this uh, some time ago, and I found, uh, uh, if, if you're familiar with the Barna Group, George Barna is uh, an organization that, uh, that uh, tracks the culture and Christianity and so on and so forth, and, and uh, George Barna Group recently published that, that less than one-half of one percent, less than one-half of 1% of ages between 18 and 23 hold to a biblical worldview. Some are probably right here. Less than one-half of 1% hold to a biblical worldview. Barna defined a worldview as, number one, a belief in absolute moral truth. Less than one-half of 1% 
believe that. Number two, the Bible is completely inerrant. Number three, Satan is a real being. Number four, you cannot earn your way into heaven through good works. Number five, Jesus Christ lived a sinful life. And, and finally, number five or six, God created the universe. Less than one half percent. It blew me away. I kind of read back, what? You know? So I start Googling that. Let me find out what other people are saying. Yeah, they're saying about the same thing, other research organizations. I knew it was, I knew it was way down there, but I didn't know it was way, way, way down there. Barna Research went on to say that 75% of young people leave church after high school. And the reason that they give is intellectual skepticism. Things just don't make sense to them. Things that they learned in the Bible things that mom and dad taught them, things that they heard in church, things that they heard in Sunday school. It just wasn't making sense. Now, some just abandoned the whole thing. Most of them didn't. Most of them were walking around and still going to church and doing everything. But, man, they've got a lot of doubt there. They've got a lot of questions and they're not getting answers to them. They're bombarded with messages that raise doubt about the truth claims of Christianity. It's funny how we think, yeah, just get them into church. We can just get them into church. Ah, they're just going to church. Okay, we've been going to church for years. They're all right. No, 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 they're not. They're hearing messages like, your parents have just indoctrinated you with all this stuff. You need to start thinking for yourself. Christianity is contrary to science. There's no proof that God exists. So why do you believe it? Matter of fact, believing in God is almost like believing in the tooth fairy and leprechauns, things like that. There is no, there's no, it's not science, it's not, there's no facts, no truth in it. You can't prove it. Parents, we teach kids what to believe. But today, kids are asking, okay, why should I believe it? And they're not satisfied with the answer because the Bible said so. Now, now that's a good answer. But they're not satisfied with that anymore. Uh, they're looking for objective external, rational answers to hang their faith on. It's interesting how in, in, in looking at this verse that we're looking at here, always be ready to make a defense, and a lot of other verses and other examples that we find, the Bible commands us to be intelligent. The Bible commands us to be rational. The Bible commands us to think the Bible commands uh, us to be very rational, intelligent, and logical about our faith. That's what he says. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone 
who asks you the reason for, for the hope that you have. Over in Philippians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says it like this. Paul said, he is set for the defense. There's the same word of the gospel. That's what he does. Do we think that way? Do we think that, you know, I'm to defend the gospel? That's what Paul said. I'm set for it. Set for it. I'm planted, rooted, and here I am set for the defense of the guy. He couldn't say it any stronger, I don't think. These verses tell us that Christianity is rational, understandable, and defendable. The problem is we're not teaching our children how to defend it. In other words, why they should believe it. Well, the practice of giving a reason, like Peter says, the practice of giving a reason is called apologetics. It has nothing to do with apologizing or anything like that. Apologetics is a Greek word that's used eight times in the New Testament, and it's translated defense. Okay? First Peter 3.15 Always be ready to make a defense. There it is right there. Like I said, theology, or I don't know if I said it or not, theology has to do with what we believe. Apologetics has to do with why we believe it. We know what we believe, but do we know why we believe it? And can we help our children know why they should believe it? Your son or daughter sitting in a school, classroom, the teacher's talking about evolution. Well, your son or daughter, you know, they believe that God created the heavens and the earth. And, uh, you know, afterwards, someone asks them, well, well, why do you believe God created heaven? Why don't you believe in evolution? Evolution is science. Why do you believe God created the heavens and the earth? And they give their typical response. Because the Bible says, I believe the Bible. Again, that's a good response. But a lot of people don't believe the Bible. And frankly, there's another response. Yes, God's Word is our primary source. But there's another source. Natural theology. Natural theology is evidence independent from the Bible. Jesus and the apostles affirmed the value of apologetics and natural theology over and over and over. We see examples. There are a lot of examples. When I began to research this, I couldn't believe, man, there's a ton of examples of this. They did it all the time. Jesus preached that he was the Son of God. That's what they needed to believe. But why should they believe it? Well, Jesus gave him the reason. He gave him objective facts. He said, you saw the miracles that I performed. You saw them. He pointed to the things that they could see, the things that they could hear. Jesus gave reason and objective facts all the time he was doing that. When the apostles wanted to prove that God exists, they, they, uh, they appealed to reason and objective facts all the time. Again, I was, 
when I began to go research this months ago, I thought, wow, I knew they did, but they did all the time. They were doing this all. They were practicing natural theology all the time. Acts chapter 14, verse 17, God did not leave himself. This is one of the apostles. God did, Paul, God did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good and gave you rain and fruitful seasons. What was God's witness to him? He didn't refer to the Old Testament scriptures, no. He referred to natural theology. God gave you rain. God gave you fruitful seasons. You're feeding your family. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 is probably one of the most popular. It was the first one I thought of when I started t- thinking about this. It's, this is where Paul says, for since the creation, he points to creation. That's natural theology. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood by what was made. That's natural theology. Knowing or learning something about God by what God created, by what you see, by what He made. That's natural theology. And that's an important thing. Well, apologetics, apologetics is using uh, uh, rational arguments uh, from natural theology. Now, that doesn't mean you don't depend upon the Holy Spirit. What it means is, is you depend upon the Holy Spirit to use the reasons and the arguments and the evidence that you present from natural theology. That's what you're doing. Let me tell you something. When someone says to you, there is no evidence God exists. Now you can say, oh, yes, there is. And parents need to learn this and teach it to their children. And you know what I found out? I thought, man, I'm going I'm to be getting into something that, that's over my head. And, and, and I did get in a few things that was over my head, <laughs> but, uh, so I'm staying away from those today. But for the most part, it's not difficult at all. It's not difficult at all. There is philosophical evidence for the existence of God. But I want to focus on scientific evidence today and next Sunday scientific evidence for the existence of God. The philosophical evidence, that's, that's, that's kind of deep, you know, and I'm, it's slowly dawning on me. And uh, when it dawns on me, uh, I'll, I'll let you know. <laughs> but the scientific evidence, it's not difficult at all. I remember when I was a kid, you know, I mean, you know, I wanted to be a cowboy, you know, Roy Rogers, the rifleman. I mean, you know, I wanted every kid, every, at least every boy in our neighborhood, they wanted to be a cowboy. Uh, well, later on, I, 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 I set my ambitions up a little higher than that. Uh, I wanted to be an astronomer. Yeah, I wanted to be an astronomer. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, I, I remember, I, 
I don't know if I got it for my birthday or what, but I, mom, dad bought me a, 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 a astronomy game. I don't know the name of it. That's, it wasn't called the astronomy game. But when you open the board up, it was a big picture of the solar system. There was the sun and the earth and the planets and the moons and the asteroids and the Van Allen radiation belt. Man, it was all there, you know. And the players had rocket ships. That was an awesome game. That Christmas, I, I, I got a telescope. Yeah. I was set. I was going to be an astronomer. Well, as you can tell, I'm not an astronomer. Uh, But months and months ago, when I started really researching this stuff and getting into this stuff, all of a sudden I thought, man, this is like when I was a kid and I was astronomy and the universe and all this other stuff. And so I I said to Pam, I, I want to get me another telescope. So I bought me a really, really good telescope. It, you can computerize thing. You can put your iPhone on it. You can hook it up and view it through your laptop. I mean, it's awesome. Very complicated. I'm trying to figure it out. <laughs> but oh well, oh well. William Lane Craig is a name that, uh, if you're not familiar with, uh, I hope you get familiar with. William Lane Craig is a Christian apologist, a Christian philosopher, uh, author, and William Lane Craig has reignited an interest today in what's called the Kalam cosmological argument for the existence of God. Sounds complicated. It's not, okay? But he has revived. It's not new. Okay, centuries old. Uh, But he has revived it in our day. People are starting to talk about it now. The Kalam cosmological argument for the existence of God. Like I said, it's very simple. Three premises. Learn, Learn these, okay? Teach them to your kid. Premise number one. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. Number two, premise number two, the universe began to exist. Premise number three, the universe had a cause. That's it. That's the Kalam cosmological argument for the existence of God. Everything that begins to exist had a cause. The universe began to exist. The universe had a cause. Now let's take each one. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. Now, that's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? I mean, (laughs) look at this building. Does anybody really believe this thing just popped into existence one day? No. There was a plan to build it. There were architects. There were plumbers. There were electricians. There were uh, carpenters, and they built it. The clothes on your back just didn't happen did they? The toaster oven on your counter in your kitchen, the car that you're driving, the ink pen, the iPhone, everything that begins to exist has a cause. That is a scientific given. Well, then what caused God? Oh, nothing caused God. 
Everything that begins to exist. God did not begin to exist. God always existed. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. Premise number two, the universe began to exist. Now, again, they've been talking about these things for centuries and centuries and centuries. This is not new stuff. The universe began to exist. Well, in 1917, Albert Einstein proposed the theory. He really didn't propose it. I guess, I guess you could say he officially proposed it as a big-shot scientist. But, I mean, they were talking about this many hundreds and hundreds of years. The Greeks talked about these things, okay? But in 1917, Albert Einstein proposed a theory of a static universe. In other words, the universe has no beginning, has no end, and it never changes. It's static. Then in 1922, a Russian mathematician and a a Belgian astronomer proposed a theory called the expanding universe. Now, again, they officially did it as big-shot mathematicians and astronomers. They've been talking about this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So they proposed a theory in 1922 of an expanding universe. That it wasn't static, it was expanding. But it wasn't until 1929 when an astronomer, American astronomer by the name of Edwin Hubble, and you probably recognize the name Hubble, in 1990, they took the Hubble telescope named in his honor on the Discovery Space Shuttle and put it in orbit 300 and something miles above the Earth, and it's still there. In 1929, Edwin Hubble proved beyond a doubt, scientifically, the universe is expanding. It's not static. It is expanding. Now, how did, what did he see? Because he did see something. Well, he saw what was called the red shift. Real simple, okay? When an object that emits light, like a star or a planet that reflects light, basically he saw he could see other galaxies, and he noticed the light being emitted by the, by the, by the stars or the, of the galaxies, okay? And uh, what he saw was as, 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 as the stars are moving, as the galaxy is moving away from ours, the light it emits shifts to the red end of the spectrum, red shift. When an object, okay, is moving in the direction of our perspective on Earth, the light waves become, they're not stretched, they're not stretched like when they're moving away, they become more condensed and closer and closer together, and it shifts to the blue end of the spectrum, which is called the blue shift. What Hubble saw was a red shift, which proved The universe was expanding. They finally proved what they had been talking about for centuries and centuries and centuries, and the Russian mathematician, the Belgian astronomer, proposed in 1922. It was considered 
the 20th century's greatest astronomical discovery. That's how big it was. The universe was expanding. Now, when Hubble said, when, when, when they said that the stars were moving away, it doesn't mean the stars were moving. The stars are stationary. The universe was expanding. If I, if I, if I took a balloon and I put, I pasted some Cheerios or raisins on it, I pasted maybe four or five raisins on it, and I began to blow the balloon up, the raisins would get further apart. The raisins aren't moving. It's the balloon that's stretching. That's the universe stretching. Another example of it is a snow cone cup. You know, a snow cone cup, like that, okay? The universe is expanding and expanding, expanding. Now, it's interesting. If you begin to reverse this, the expansion, if you begin going back in time everything starts getting closer and closer and closer and closer together to a point where there's no space between anything. You come to a point, a, 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 a point where everything, space, matter, and time is... That's what scientists say, that was the beginning because you see, it, the, the universe cannot be eternal because it's expanding, and if it was expanding, then if you run it backwards, everything comes to a point of space, matter, and time. A single point of space, matter, and time. So, what caused it to expand? Well, scientists say what caused it to expand was a big explosion, you know, a big bang caused it to expand. Now, it's interesting. That's when they say the universe began, all right? Space, matter, they don't go any further back than that. Some do, but then you start getting into uh, the metaphysics, things beyond physics and sort of thing. And so it began to, a big explosion and boom, the universe began expanding and is still expanding today. Well, from a Christian perspective, our, our experience with explosions is explosions blow things up. Explosions destroy things. The expansion of the universe was an orderly expansion. It wasn't destroy, it wasn't blowing up. It was order. It expanded in an orderly way. Now, let's go back further in time. Here we are, we've universe is that further, further, and we've come to a single point of space, matter, and time. Now we go back further than that. What is there? Nothingness. That's what there is. Was, was, it, was it just empty space? No. Empty space is something. Nothing. That's what it was. Nothing. I mean, the idea of nothing is hard to get your head around, isn't it? There has to be something. No. 
there was nothing. I don't know. I don't know about that. It's, but that's what it was. It was nothing. Nothing. There was God. But God was before space, matter, and time, that single point. God created that single point, And the moment God spoke it into word, in the beginning, time begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens. There's space, not, not stars. Stars are, and stuff are created in a couple of days. In the beginning, times, there's time. God created the heavens, there's space, and the earth, there's matter. God spoke by his word, and boom, and it began expanding in an orderly fashion. At that point, laws of physics began working, and so on and so forth. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, God stretches out the heavens before him like a tent. I started finding these things. It refers to God spreading it out, stretching it out, expanding it out. It's wonderful. It's amazing. Stretching. Words like stretching and spreading were used a lot, referring to the universe. Now, one attempt to get around God is that they use is, yes, it's a scientific fact that everything that begins to exist has a uh, beginning, a cause. Everything that begins to exist has cause, except the universe. The universe doesn't have a cause. The universe doesn't have a cause. Well, if the universe just happened, if the universe just popped into existence, why, why don't we see things made up of parts of the universe just pop into existence? Why don't all of a sudden we're walking around and boom, there's a roller coaster, or boom, there's a banjo, or boom, there's, you know, because those things, we are part of the universe. That's just a way to try to get around God, so they deny one of, the, one, of the most, one of the most substantial principles of science, that everything that begins to exist has a cause. So now we know the universe had a cause. It's not eternal. And, 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 and which means something, someone caused it. Well, a second evidence of the, that the universe had a cause is support, premise two uh, is the second law of thermodynamics. So the second law of thermodynamics is easy to understand. We all experience it every, it every day. Second law of thermodynamics just simply says everything goes from order to disorder. Now, scientists say that the second law of thermodynamics began at the Big Bang. It did not. The Bible tells me where it be, when it began. The second law of thermodynamics began at the fall. That's when death entered the world. That's when people began to grow old and die. That's when things began to run down and wear out. Okay? But the second law of thermodynamics simply, uh, 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 some of the references in the Bible of the second law, like Romans 8, 20, and 21, listen, creation was subject to vanity. All creation is moving to vanity, in bondage to corruption. All of creation 
is in bondage. It is, un- it is on a road of corruption, and nothing's going to stop it. Psalm 102, 25, 26 describes the effects of the second law. It says everything grows old and wears out because of everything is perishing. That's the second law of thermodynamics. That's why your shoes wear out. That's why the paint on your house goes old and cracks and fades. That's why you, that's why Al's wearing out. That's why his knee's wearing out. You know? Second law of thermodynamics. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, he said, heaven and earth are passing away. That's the second law of thermodynamics. Because the universe will eventually die, scientists refer to that as equilibrium. In other words, what it means is all the energy in the universe, all the stars, all the heat, all the energy in the universe will eventually be used up. And the universe will reach equilibrium. It'll be constant, cold, dark, dead. An example, pour you a cup of coffee, set it on the counter, go in the other room, forget about it, come back a little later, what happens? It's cold. It's the temperature of the room. That's the second law, working. Explain it to your kids. Explain it to your kids. Use a candle. Light a candle. Candle's hot. It gives off light. It burns down, goes out. After a while, the wax is hard and cool. That's the second law of thermodynamics. There's tons of examples of it. If the universe is infinite, which, by the way, an infinite... Well, no, I'm not going to say that. If the universe is infinite, which it's not... We should have reached equilibrium billions, trillions, infinity year, infinite years ago. You see, if the universe has always been, the second law is not infinite. It begins and it runs down. Then we shouldn't be here today if the universe is infinite. It would have reached equilibrium Trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of years ago. You see, the second law of thermodynamics proves that the universe is not infinite, and it had a beginning. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. We see that in the, uh, the second law of thermodynamics. We see it in the fact of the uh, discovery by... Uh, 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 name just Edwin Hubble <laughs> and the red shift. Premise number three. Let's move on. We got to quit. Premise number three the universe had a cause. Premise number one everything that begins to exist has a cause. Premise number two the universe began to exist. Number three, conclusion the universe had a cause. You see, natural theology only tells us there was a cause. All right? That's great, because once they've determined there's a cause, now they've got to explain the cause. All right? So natural theology only tells us there's a cause. It does not tell us what the cause was. But you see, God gave us the ability to think and reason, and we can draw some conclusions about the cause. 
And I came up with three, and I'm sure there's a number of others. But the first one I came up about the cause is that the cause had to be a conscious being. The cause had to be a conscious being because only a conscious being can decide not to create or decide to create. Rocks cannot decide to do anything. Hydrogen cannot decide to do anything. Only a conscious being can decide to do something. And not only that, only a conscious being can create other conscious beings like us. So, the first thing we can conclude about this cause is it had to be a conscious being. Second thing we can conclude about this cause is that this cause existed before space, matter, and time, which means this conscious being, this cause, was eternal. He existed before there was any time or space or matter. There was nothingness. And number three, this cause had to be very, very powerful. I'm sure if we sit here and think about this a little longer, we might come up with another one or two or three. We call this conscious being, this infinite being before space, matter, and time that is very, very powerful, we call him God. God is the only rational and reasonable explanation to a cause. The universe cannot be self-caused. In order to be self-caused, then it had to exist to cause itself, and that's, that's not reasonable. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Charles Malick, or Malick, I think it is, he, he's a Christian philosopher, Christian apologist, author. He gave a speech some years ago at the Billy Graham Center in Wheaton, Illinois. You can Google it, okay? I found it. You can Google the speech. And he said, Christians face two tasks. The first task is a spiritual one. And that spiritual task is to save souls. But he says there's a second task. The second task is an intellectual task. And it involves saving minds. He says that evangelism not only should not only focus on converting people spiritually, but converting them intellectually, teaching them how to think and reason Christianly, helping them to learn how to compete intellectually with secularists in order to bring the Christian worldview to bear on a, our culture. That's what we're not doing. Malik said this, quote, I must be frank with you, the greatest danger confronting American evangelical Christianity is the danger of anti-intellectualism. We're not thinking. The mind is not cared for enough. 
we emphasize faith over intellect. Malik's point is that we should emphasize faith and intellect. Now, why is that so important? Why is it so important that we just can't believe and, 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 and just focus on faith? Why do we need to focus on intellect? Because, you see, the gospel is, is not heard in isolation. The gospel is heard. We are preaching the gospel to people that live in a culture. A person raised in a culture where Christianity is seen intellectually viable, they'll listen to it. On the other hand, a person raised in a, a, a postmodern culture like we're getting into or maybe already into, people are not going to be as open to it. It's not going to make a whole lot of sense. If you went to the mall and you're at the mall, and all of a sudden, three or four uh, uh, Hare Krishnas, I was trying to think what they were called. Uh, I could see them in their sheets and bald heads. But uh, three or four Hare Krishnas came up to you and said, we, would you like to be a follower? Yeah, you'd probably, you know, I, I, I wouldn't take it seriously, you know. I'd, you know, they're weird, you know, strange, poor people, you know. But in a different culture, like in India, those people would be taken very seriously. You see, we live in a post-Christian culture, and you know what? We are the ones they're not taking very seriously. Instead of retreating from secularist arguments, like Peter said, that intimidate us, and we become fearful, and we become troubled, and we become doubtful, Instead of retreating from secular arguments, we educate our minds in rational, logical arguments using natural theology and then moving to revelation, biblical theology. When we've moved, then they're more open to that. But we've got to educate our minds using rational and logical arguments, using natural theology. It's, it's, it's Christians that nurture their minds that affect a culture to see that the gospel really is a legitimate option and worth listening to. Malik's point, if the church loses intellectual battle, if the church loses the intellectual battle in one generation, then evangelism becomes more difficult in the next. That explains a lot. Part two is next Sunday morning. Father, we come to you today thanking you for your goodness and your graciousness in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for the minds that you gave us to think, to reason, to understand. And we thank you for your word that guides us in all truth, Lord. Now, Father, we commit this message, these thoughts to you, and pray that they were pleasing to you and profitable to everyone. We pray for our pastor away on the trip, and on, when Wayne and Shar, we lift them up. Ask your blessings upon them this morning. In Christ we pray. Amen.
We hope God has encouraged you with today's message. Thank you for joining us at the Edgemont Bible Church. We'd love to have you visit us if you're ever in the area. For directions, more information, or to support the ministry of Edgemont Bible Church, please go to our website at edgemontbiblechurch.org. That's edgemontbiblechurch, all one word, dot org. You can also follow us on Facebook at Edgemont Bible Church, where the Sunday morning message is broadcast live.